What's up, what's up, what's up? Everybody doing all right? Happy Sunday to you. Good morning, Transit Church. Uh, also, good morning to those of you joining us on live stream. If I've not met you yet. My name is Jeff. I'm the lead pastor for the Transit. We're glad to have you here. Uh, hot outside. Hopefully, it's a little bit cooler on the inside, uh, but we're going to have a good morning uh, this morning. We have been in a series in uh, the New Testament book of 1 Peter, and we're continuing in that series today. So grab your Bibles. Turn to 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at three verses in chapter two, and as is our tradition, we're going to read these out loud together. Chapter two of First Peter, verses one through three. Let's read together. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a beautiful day, for beautiful people, and for the just a beautiful gathering of your of your saints, of your church. Uh, we don't take this lightly. This is not a, a have to, although we are encouraged to not forsake gathering together. This is a get to. We get to come in and partake of uh, of your word. We come to get encouraged by it. We come to get challenged by it, to, to hear the gospel and be changed by it. But also we get to commune with people who are like us on this journey of faith together. And so Lord, we don't take this lightly. We thank you for it. We thank you for your word. May it do what you intended to do in our hearts this morning. As I preach, Lord God, I pray that the meditation of my hearts and the meditation, uh, the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable uh, to your sight. Oh, Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And it's, it's in Jesus name that I pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So. All right. So sports is turning back on. Right. At least professional sports. That's a cool thing. Baseball started up. I think the WNBA started up. Got uh, NBA starting up this uh, this week on the 30th. Here's what my heart takes for is tennis. Like we're my ten any tennis fans in here at all. So hopefully like some professional tennis like well, in, in the big leagues will kick up in August with the U.S. Open. If you ask me who my favorite players are in the, in the tennis world, I got a lot of them. But of course, no, I mean, if you're an American, you, you can't overlook the, the accolades of Venus and Serena Williams, all that they've done for the sport. I mean, these two women have brought the power game to the women's women's tennis game. And of course, all the all the things they've done to, to bring note to a sport that um, didn't have many people of color in it now is attracting several of them, almost like Tiger Woods has done for golf. I think the what's overlooked in regards to Venus and Serena, though, is that the secret sauce of their of their success is not just that these these girls play well and have won a lot. It's their dad. It's, it's Richard Williams. And if uh, and if you know Richard Williams, Here's the thing about him. He believed in his girls. He saw their skill and determination, and he knew that one day they would, he, they would be the best. And he spoke this into them. And so uh, here, was, here's, here was Richard Williams' sort of uh, mantra as uh, Venus and Serena, Serena would uh, get ready to take the court. He'd say, all right, Venus and Serena, here's the deal. You, you hit harder. Your shots are more accurate. You're in better shape. You've got more energy. You're tougher mentally and physically than all of your opponents. And then here's what here's his charge. Go out there and act like it. Now, why am I telling you about tennis? See, in our text, the Apostle Peter is writing to a group of Christians that he calls the elect uh, exiles of the dispersion. These these Christians, these churches have been scattered all across Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, and they've been marginalized in their faith. Uh, made to experience hardship and suffer, especially because they're just following Jesus. And, and he's using this same reasoning that Richard Williams is using. 
Actually, we could say Richard Williams is using the same reasoning that the Apostle Peter is using. Theologians call this the, the indicative and the imperative. The indicative. Serena, Venus, you, you're like, you're better than all your opponents. You're, you're tougher mentally and physically uh, capable than they are. So go out there and not just do well. I want you to win. That's the in, indicative. The imperative is go out there and, and act like you act like the, the, the gifts that you have are, are yours. And Peter is doing this same thing to these young Christian churches. All in, in chapter one, Peter tells these young Christians who they are. He starts out by saying you're, you're not only elect exiles, God has chosen you to, to, to call you to himself. But then he unpacks the privileges they enjoy in the gospel of being born again into a, a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus, of them gaining an inheritance that that has kept in heaven by God himself. Peter tells them to to them belongs a salvation that not even that, that the angels even long to look into. These are all and more the indicatives that Peter talks about in chapter one. But then he gives them these same believers some imperatives. He says, based upon who God has called you to be, he says, you need to adopt a, a Godward focus. Okay, think, think, think Godwardly about yourself, that, that Jesus is going to return, and he reminds them that God has called them to be holy, and that they're to they're con- conduct themselves in holiness, living before God with fear, because he is both their father, but he's also their judge. And then, as we looked at last week, in verse 22, Peter calls them to a brotherhood and a sisterhood. He says, life is hard. It's going to be tough, particularly because you're claiming the name of Jesus. And it doesn't make any sense when life is hard for you to suffer by yourself. And so he calls them to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And that's where we pick up today. And so in a sense, the, the verses that we're looking at today, they're just they're, they're flowing from the, the verses that we looked at last week. Verse one through three, Peter continues this train of thought right before it. He speaks again in uh, indicative and imperative. And he essentially tells these young Christians, these Christian churches, two things. Firstly, he says, if you're going to live for Christ in a world that's increasingly hostile to you because of your faith, one first thing is you need to dress the part. You need to dress the part. You need to have the right wardrobe on. And secondly, he says, you need to eat right. All right. So you health health nuts. Listen up. Right. Dress the part. Eat right. Look at verse one. Peter writes. Put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. My, my eyes are trained to the, the, to the verb put away. That word, uh, that verb translated put away carries the sense of you taking off your clothes, leaving them in a pile and walking away. So when I was a young lieutenant in the army, um, uh, my first deployment was in the 90s, in 1991, to Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. That tells you how old I am because some of you weren't even born. You've only read that in the history books, right? And so, you know, our army was uh, absolutely, unequivocally ready for war, okay? We hadn't had a major conflict since the Vietnam era. There were some other skirmishes in between that, but this was like, like full-on army, major combat kinds of stuff. And the army was ready but we were ready for a European war against the Russians, right? The Cold War stuff. We weren't ready logistically, at least uniform wise, to go to the desert, Southwest Asia. And so I, I was in the desert with uh, the 101st Airborne Division Air Assault for seven months. And they gave me two uniforms, like, like two desert camouflage uniforms. If you aren't in the military, that means nothing to you. Let me, let me, let me give you some layman's terms. I had two pair of pants. And I had two shirts and I wore those two pair of pants and two shirts for seven months. And I only got to wash them every two weeks. Wash them by hand out of water from a water buffalo. So you can imagine that, right? 100, 107 degree heat. Every day I'm wearing a pair of pants and a pair and a shirt, washing them only every other week. So by the end of seven months, those clothes were standing up by themselves. <laughs> reeking like you don't know what. Uh, Interestingly, the army asked for those back. Here's what Peter's saying. Nasty. Like, get rid of that stuff. He's saying, take that stuff off. In fact, you might as well just get a blowtorch, light it up, and walk away. He's saying, rid yourself of that. This phrase is not just common to Peter. 
it's a, it's a consistent phrase that many of the New Testament writers, particularly uh, Paul and James, will use when they're giving ethical instructions to, uh, to their listeners. We see this in Paul's writings in Romans 13, Ephesians 4, and you also find it in James. We're going to uh, read out loud the one, the, the, the verse in James. Here's what James says. This is a parallel verse to what we read in 1 Peter. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And so this verse and ones like it, this is classic New Testament metaphor. And what these writers are saying is, is this is how the believer is expected to combat sin in your life. Like the sin in us, there's, there's the Holy Spirit that's drawing us closer to God, but there's also a war with us at the remaining flesh that's in us. And that is your sin trying to do what it wants to do. And he says, there's a war within you. And so how the, the, the metaphor is, how do we remove these patterns and habits of sin in our lives? And that really is the key that, that Peter is firstly trying to get over to these, these Christian churches who are in exile and who are suffering from just following Jesus. Peter's giving them a, a command, an imperative. He's calling them not to passivity, but to activity. He doesn't paint a picture that our sin just melts away, albeit don't we just wish it would happen like that? Or, or don't you wish the, the sin of the person that you live close in proximity to, that their sin would just melt away? Lord, can you just take that away from them so I don't have to deal with it? Unfortunately, that's not how it happens. Growing close to Jesus and growing in godliness and holiness, like Peter says earlier, doesn't happen because we just ease into it. We read books and uh, you know, we uh, avail ourselves to sermons of people like me standing up preaching a sermon like I'm preaching today. And unfortunately, we make it sound easy. We say stuff like just appropriate more faith in God. Meditate on all the promises of God. Just remember your justification by faith in Christ. Memorize these verses. Know the wonder of the righteousness of Christ gifted to you. And it's, it'll be thrilling to your heart. It'll melt with gladness before God and you won't want to sin. And of course, there is a lot of truth in what I've just said. Uh, Thomas Chalmers says that we need a growing affection for God so that sin won't be attractive to us. And surely to defeat sin in our lives, we firstly have to have the right theology to lead to our doxology. If you know the right things about God, it very surely is going to lead to you having the right um, affection for God. You'll be drawn to him. You'll have right devotion for God. To, be, to defeat sin, you have to have the right sense of the glory and the grace that God has for you, the generosity of God's kindness towards you, such that it inclines your heart not to want to, to sin and instead want to know and love and serve Jesus. But of course, that's not the whole picture because you still have flesh in you. The scripture calls us as Christians to, to an active, direct engagement with the habits and patterns of sin in our lives. It's like Israel in the wilderness. So uh, Israel spent 40 years just wandering around in the wilderness. And that was a, it was a twofold reason. The first reason was because they were disobedient. They sent in 12 spies and only two of those spies, Joshua and Caleb, Caleb saw the saw the opportunity for them to go into this land of promise that God had given them. The rest of them said, no, they're giants in the land and we can't defeat them. And so God had them go in circles in the wilderness. But he also had them traveling in the wilderness because he was forming in them into an army. Because when they went into the land of Canaan, this land of promise, there were these formidable nations who God was going to go before them to defeat. They just couldn't see that. But more importantly, these nations were pagan nations and they were worshiping pagan gods. And God knew that if he took this young, uh, feeble nation, this feeble army and uh, didn't train them beforehand, that they would succumb to these nations and they would also serve their gods. And in fact, that's what happens to Israel, right? Why do they go into exile? The, the, the nations alongside them, uh, uh, they sort of started serving their gods and doing what those nations did. And that's a picture of the sin in our lives, right? And so Peter's saying, hey, don't kowtow with sin in your life. You can't allow it to live alongside you. You can't just let it be in proximity to you because you'll ease on over towards it. It will eventually overcome you. When it comes to the sin in our lives, we have to take decisive steps to kill it, to put it off, and to turn from it. We do need a, a, an expo expulsive power of a new affection, Tom, Thomas Chalmers would say. 
We need to see the wonder of grace that we have so that our hearts would be thrilled and, grat- and with, uh, filled with gratitude. And we would want to please Jesus. But at the same time, here's what Peter's reminding us. We need a mallet and we need some nails. And sometimes we got to crucify our hands and our flesh with its passions and its, and its desires. We need both of those things in our life to be fruitful Christians. And so what Peter is training our thoughts to in chapter two, particularly in verse one, he's flowing from this idea, this exhortation to brotherly love in verse chapters one, verse 22. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then he lists five vices or five sins that describe the antithesis of love, the very opposite of love. This is anti-love, malice and hypocrisy, deceit, envy, and slander. These are all opposites of the love that, that, that Peter is calling us to, and yet these invade all of our lives. Sadly, because they're in our lives, they invade the church as well. And so I want to define each one and also point out some connections between them. And the first vice that Peter lists is, is malice. Malice. Malice is any kind of ill intent. Malice is you wanting pain and suffering to come to someone else. So the question that we should have with all of these vices, as I name them all and talk a little bit about them, is, man, have I ever had that in my heart? Have I ever had malice in my heart? Do I wish evil on someone because of what they did or did not do, or maybe even because of just who they are? Uh, do, do I say, well, they deserve that? It's about time they got what they, des- they were deserving. Because if I'm saying that, if I'm thinking that, if I'm acting that out, then, of course, Peter is saying that that's malice. And more than just that's malice, that's not love, the love that he's called us to. The second uh, vice is deceit. Deceit is concealing or misrepresenting the truth. One author said, deceit is when you're afraid to give yourself truly to someone because you think if they only knew who you really were, they wouldn't like you. And so when we think like that, we, cheat, we, we hold ourselves back, right? We, we, there's always a part of us that we are unwilling to give to someone. There's always a kind of a, of a front, a little bit of a lie, a little bit of deception into who we are uh, in, in proportion to the people that are in our lives. And of course, this is the stuff that destroys a marriage. Marriage is that place where you're supposed to, uh, to truly be yourself. Like you wake up in the morning, bad hair, bad breath. You got someone in front, well, laying beside you, in front of you that accepts you willingly and unconditionally because of who you are. And you don't have this, this desire or this propensity to deceive that person. Let me give you a, an example. So suppose so a wife goes on an errand and uh, the husband's at home. And, and so this, this wife uh, texts back, calls back, and she asks the husband the dreaded, do you remember question? Do you remember question? And of course, that do you remember can be, can be anything. Uh, did you remember to walk the dog, take out the trash, pay that bill that was late, take the cake out of the oven? And 60% of the time, that husband didn't remember. Right. He, he ain't going to remember that. He's doing other things around the house. He's, he's handling the, 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 the handyman list that, that his wife has written out for him. And so he didn't remember. But, oh, wait, she's called and reminded him. So, of course, now he remembers. And so what does he do? He's on the phone talking to his wife and he's scuffling at the same time. He's running into the kitchen. He's got some hand towels. He reaches into the oven. It's hot. He pulls that cake out, which is 20 minutes overbaked. And he pulls it out and sits it on top of the stove. And he goes, yeah, honey, I took it out. And so the wife, she like, what was what's that? What's going on? She's like, uh, so it's the cake out of the oven. And he dutifully has an opportunity to say, hey, sweetie, I'm sorry. I, I let it overcook. You might need to make another one. But no, he doesn't do that. What does he do? He says, yes, yeah, it's on the stove right now. And so she asks, well, is it cool yet? <laughs> is it cool? And, uh, and you know, the cake is not cool. The cake is piping hot because he just took it out of the oven. And the, the husband, of course, has an opportunity not to lie, not to stretch the truth, but to tell the absolute truth, not to deceive. And he says, well, it's, it's cooling down. Right. And on and on it goes. Next vice is hypocrisy. I don't want to resolve that one because that one's too close to home, isn't it? Hypocrisy is when you believe uh, what you believe doesn't line up with how you live. It's when your belief doesn't match your practice. And of course, this is the one that that the church is always um, caught on. 
Because sometimes in society, what we believe about our God and about worship and church and, and all that doesn't match how we act or what we say to those around us. And we look like and we appear like hypocrites. Hypocrisy is, is putting on a new face in every situation or being a different actor or character in the various situations of your life. And the thing is, with hypocrisy, if you're doing that at some point, it just gets confusing and exhausting. Because if you're being a different person or if you're playing a different personality with every person or every situation you meet, at some point, you yourself are going to get confused as to who am I supposed to be in this one moment? Mark Twain appropriately said, he says, oh, what a dangerous web we weave when we first are acting to deceive. We become captain, uh, captive slaves in the webs we make through the facade of hypocrisy, acting like we're something when we're not. Next, Peter mentions envy, and envy is special because it lies at the root of all of our malicious feelings. We want ill intent on someone because we envy who they are or what they're doing. Envy is when we spite and resent others uh, because of their success or perhaps even because of the possessions that they own. We want what others have or we want to be what others are. And here's the thing. You know you struggle with envy when you have a hard time celebrating someone else's success or the blessings that God God gives them. And we see this in the very beginning of our Bible. This is this is a story of Cain and Abel. Cain can't celebrate the fact that God loves Abel's offering. And what does what does he do? Well, Cain kills, kills Abel. All Cain can think about is, well, God, I gave you an offering. I gave you an offering from the earth. God accepted uh, Abel's more more readily because it was a sacrifice. And he killed his brother. Those of you with kids, all it takes is for you to scoop out one or two scoops of ice cream to a bowl, right? You scoop out some ice cream in a bowl, and then the comparison starts. Oh, I wanted, I wanted as much as he got. Well, they, they got the flavor that I got. Why can't I have that? And, of course, that conversation spills over into all other kind of things. Well, why do they get to watch TV? I wanted to watch TV. I don't want to color. I want to watch TV. They got more game time than I got. And, of course, we, we learned it as kids, and, unfortunately, we grow up with it, and it just it's the same thing with an adult flair to it. Well, well, she got a boyfriend. Why can't I have a boyfriend? They got a house. Why can't I have a house? Why do I have to rent when they, they were able to buy a house? Why did that person get a promotion and I can't get a promotion? Look at my neighbors. There they go again. They got a new car. Surely they can't afford all these cars. They got to be in debt, right? We, we think like that. We can't celebrate. We're envious and it controls us. You're always going to be looking around the corner asking who has more, who's doing more. And when you can't have what others have or you can't be like others are, then what we do is we try and tear them down a notch or two. And we do that with slander. And here's what slander is. Slander is when you speak of people such as to defame them. Slander is to put people in the minds of the listener, to put them down. So you're talking to someone and you're going to mention someone. You're going to put them down with the words that you're using. We live in a culture that makes a ton of money on this one. And because we're surrounded by it, it's so easy for us to dismiss it, not think much of it, or even, even join into it. This idea of slander. Anytime you pull up the news on your phone and watch it on your TV, or you're looking at an article, you're, you're gonna be exposed to slander. And, and we can't be surprised when we join in with that stuff. Every single time someone's name is run through the mud in the press, that, that's, that's slander. And, and because we live in a partisan country, particularly right now where we're all divided, like I'm on this side of the aisle, you're on that side of the aisle, politically and uh, theologically and, and culturally, it's so easy that when someone from our camp slanders someone else, we, we agree with it. But when it's someone from our side that's being slandered, like, stop, don't do that. That's wrong. And we forget that we're Christians. And here's what the scriptures tell us as people of God. Ephesians 4, 29, it says, let no corrupting talk come from your lips, but only as such as good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. We're supposed to be 
expounding grace to those who are in front of us so that what they're hearing is not slander or put downs, but they're being lifted up by the words that are coming from our mouth. And so when we are participating in this stuff of envy and slander, what we're doing is doing what the culture does. And Paul said, Peter says, don't do that. In fact, he would say, if you can't um, ex- ex- extend grace to people who are, who, are, who are listening to you, then you probably shouldn't be talking at all. Just close your mouth, button it up, don't talk. And so here they are, malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And, and Peter's saying, these are all the antithesis of love. Like life is too short not to be loving to each other, particularly if life is hard and you're suffering. And so the point to the point of, of how these fit together, here's, here's the thing. When you find one, don't be surprised if you find all the rest of them with it. Malice and envy lead to deceit and slander. The envious want to bring other people down and they'll slander or malign others to do so. And the hypocrite, the hypocrite just justifies all these actions while condemning the people, uh, uh, condemning other people of their actions. And so Peter tells his readers, that's not brotherly love. And so he says, put it away. Get, Get rid of it. All these vices, just put them away because they're like weeds, weeds that grow in our hearts. And so there's a dirty little secret about about you and me. And here's a dirty little secret about you and me. And this is going to hurt a little bit. It's just the, 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 the church that we occupy is full of sinners. It's not just our church, transit church. It's every church. It's the, it's the universal church because our hearts are, are, are have sin in them. That the church is full of people like us. It's full of deceivers and hypocrites and, and slanders and people that uh, it, uh, malign other people. And we envy. And so that's what makes this text all the more potent for us. There's a realism here that Peter is projecting to us in this ancient text. This is Peter being as honest and straightforward as he possibly can to people like you and me. And Peter is saying, just because you've been born again doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle with these kinds of things because we have a war going on inside of us. Peter isn't describing the work of the devil in these in these vices. Right. This is not devilish action. He's describing people like me and you. He's describing followers of Jesus and our habitual sins. And so there, there is good news here, though. All right. I don't want to give you all bad news, although these vices are. Uh, we're subject to all of them. The good news is, and the Bible says this, the reign of sin, the mastery of sin is broken in our life if you're a Christian. Romans 6, right? Galatians 5. We're not under law, but under grace. There's a realism here. He also says the presence of sin is, is, is persistent. It's like a cancer It carries on in our hearts. Someone likened being born again to a weed growing in your yard. So yesterday as the sun went down, I decided to cut my yard. Uh, So uh, I've got about four feet of grass in front of my house. So it's not very much. I don't even have a gas lawnmower. It's a push lawnmower. But I felt good getting it out because everybody likes a a clean cut lawn. Right. Okay. so I got my little push mower with the blades out and I pushed it. And because it's rained so much, my grass is my weeds are all are, are all green. And so I cut them down. I got my weeder out and I'm sort of weeding, weeding all, all the, the rest of it, edging the yard up. And by the time I got got through with it, I'm looking back at my four feet of grass and I'm like, man, that looks good. Don't we love a nice, clean cut edge yard? It just looks good. And you get to brag in front of your neighbors when their yard looks all nasty, uncut. But here's the thing about your yard and mine. Give it two days. Give it a little bit of sunlight, add a little bit of rainwater to it. Those weeds, boop, they're going to pop back up, not even, might, even, might even produce flowers. And that's how sin is in our hearts. Give it a little time. If you're not attentive to it, it's just going to pop back up. And so unless you get that gardening tool and you're painstakingly um, pulling that thing up from the roots, it's going to grow back again. It's going to grow back with a vengeance. And Peter's saying that same thing happens in our hearts. So, so for us, there, there's been a real change in our hearts when we come to faith. The new birth has really transformed you into a whole new being. At the same time, 
we will spend the rest of our lives on earth rooting out weeds from our hearts. And honestly, it's going to take until Jesus comes back and takes you home to this new heaven and new earth before it's done. And so that is our task. Here's the other thing I want you to pay attention to. It's the word all. Notice how many times Peter uses that word all. Peter exhorts us to put all, all malice and all these other vices to, to, to put them away. You've heard this before. The word all in the Bible and the Greek means what? It means all, right? Okay. Uh, actually, it means more than all. It means every. It means it constitutes the full quantity or extent. It means completely. And so Peter is telling us something very specific here. He's saying when it comes to putting away sin, there's, there's no place for moderation. In fact, you can't, you can't do it like half the way and expect it to be done as God intends for it to get done. We can never allow ourselves to, to rest content with a little bit of progress. And of course, that's, that's my temptation. Perhaps that's your temptation too. So we have a good week. Like we wake up in the morning, we, we get some, get some uh, good devotion time in. And I say, I did that for three or four days. Uh, I'm able to control my mouth at home. Like I'm not mouthing off at my kids. I'm being kind to my wife, extending grace to people who, who, who need it, even those who don't. I go to work and it's a good week at work. Maybe even I get to share my faith with someone. I mean, man, boom, that's like a great week, right? And I start feeling good, pumping up my chest. I'm a good Christian, right? But all we got to do is give it some time, right? Give it some time. And so in the, the great temptation, we can, we can be proud of ourselves, but uh, we can also take a break because we feel good about ourselves. And the minute we ease up is the minute that our sin pops back up. And here's the problem with sin. Every sin, no matter how small, is an offense against a, a holy triune God. Every sin that we commit, no matter how small, is an offense that put Jesus on the cross for which his blood and his body had to atone for. And so Peter says to us, don't rest until all. Everybody say all. All. All malice, hypocrisy, deceit, envy, slander until all that is rooted out of our hearts. And unfortunately, that's going to be the rest of our lives. He's not calling us to passivity. He's calling us to activity, to be attentive to what's in our hearts, to be aware of it and to do something about it. And so to uh, sum this first point up, we need to dress the part. We need to take off those soiled clothes, note that they're nasty to be constantly putting away the remnants of our old life. And that means we have to take decisive action. Here's the second thing. We'll be a little quicker on this one. He says, we need to eat right. We need to eat right. Look at verse two. Peter writes, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Verse three, if indeed you've tasted the Lord is good. Notice what Peter says about us, how he speaks about us. We are like newborn infants. He's not putting us down there. That's not a put down. He's not calling us immature in our faith. He's saying every single believer is in a sense like a newborn infant because the means by which we grow is the same thing that we need to long for. That word long is the, is the Greek word to desire. In other words, the only way that growth happens is by pure spiritual milk. This is an important phrase. It's repeated. This idea of, of milk as something that uh, lends to our uh, the maturation of our faith is repeated several times in the Bible. So I'm going to take a little bit of time of, of breaking this down. So the first thing that Peter says is, is this milk is pure. That's a play on, on words in the Greek. Pure is the Greek word uh, adolon, adolon. Peter is commending a milk product that's free from additives. It's unadulterated. In the ancient world, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the regular, a regular person would take milk from an animal and they would water it down, much like they would water down wine. So they would uh, dilute it to conserve it, to make it, uh, to make more of it, make it more plentiful. Peter says the milk that we need needs to be pure. In other words, don't water it down, don't add anything to it. It needs to be completely unadulterated. And what he's doing is, and this is the play in the Greek, he's contrasting this idea of, of uh, Adelon, pure milk, with dolon, which is a word that he uses back in chapter in verse one with the word deceit. In other words, you have an opportunity to misrepresent the truth to grow. You can't you, you can't grow on deceit. You need the you need what's pure. You need what's true. So he's saying not deceit, but but pure, the pure milk of the word. And so in verse one, Peter has in, in, in uh, excuse me. 
He's contrasting with dolon, the word Peter uses for deceit in verse one. So Peter has in mind young churches, but also young believers of, of various generations, all who, uh, like an infant, have a desperate desire for basic nourishment. You ever notice that? Uh, so a baby doesn't need meat. It needs pure, unadulterated milk. And of course, the, the picture you should be getting, because Peter gives us this, is a baby getting milk from its mother. Now, uh, uh, no man should stand up and talk about uh, a woman feeding their baby and how they're to feed it. Uh, I think science now proves that, at least in the formative stages of a baby's life, that breast milk is, is beneficial for them, probably even the best thing for them. I think the Bible is corroborating that here. It's saying uh, like uh, a baby needs pure spiritual milk from its mother. How do you get that? They get it from the breast. We need pure spiritual milk from God himself. It's equating those two. I think Peter is saying the quality of the milk produces the right character in us. It's not that synthetic milk or milk from an animal won't sustain you and keep you alive. He's saying that's not the best milk for you. He adds, it's pure spiritual milk. So the word for spiritual is the Greek word that comes from Romans 12, 1. You, go, you guys know this verse. Uh, this is the verse that, uh, that, that Paul says, I, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your logicon, your, your spiritual worship. And the word spiritual there, logicon, means true, genuine, essential. Peter is connecting the thought from verses 23 to 25 of a verse of chapter one that we looked at last week, where he's describing the living logos by which Christians are given new birth. So here's what chapter one, verse 23 says. Look at your Bibles. It says, since you've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. So the, the word there is the logos, the logos of God. And that logos gives us logicon. It gives us spiritual life. And so how do we how do we live and grow? Peter says we live and grow by the pure logicon milk. That's milk. That's the word of God. Spiritual meaning true, genuine, essential milk is the word of God. You need to drink that in. I mentioned James chapter one, verse 21 before. I'm going to look at that verse again. James 121. This is a parallel verse to what Peter is saying here. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Uh, again, Peter is saying the same thing that James is saying. James is saying the same thing that Peter is saying. They're using different words. Instead of saying long for pure uh, spiritual milk, James says receive with meekness the implanted word. And so pure milk is the implanted word. So we put off sin. And instead, we drink in the word. And Peter is saying, that's how you grow. You drink in the pure spiritual word. So the question that many of us have is like, well, how do I make this work? In fact, the question that we really ask is, why is it that I'm not growing like the Bible suggests I'm supposed to grow as a Christian? Why is it that I get caught up? Why is it that I stumble? Why don't I have more power to combat my sin? Why do my sins seem so strong and my ability to, to, to have an appetite for spiritual worship, to come to church, to want to listen to a sermon, to fellowship with other people? Why is that so, so weak? And of course, the, the question, the answer to that is, is, I mean, that's particular for all of us. There are all, there's all kinds of things in our lives, how we grew up, you know, what our natural propensities are that could answer that question. But here, here's what Peter starts. Peter suggests the place to start when you're pondering the question of why am I not growing the way I think I'm supposed to grow or the way the Bible suggests that I grow? He, he, he says, ask this question. What's going on with you in a word? Right. He says, what's going on with you and this pure spiritual milk, this implanted word? How are you how are you doing and drinking that in? Because the living and abiding word of God by which God caused you to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that's the same word that causes you to grow. That's the same word that helps you and nourishes you and brings you into maturity. And so Peter would say to us, how are you doing with that? And I think the, it works the same for all of us. When we fail to be consistent over a period of time, 
in reading the scriptures, it's like every sin that that attracts us seems seems more prevalent. It seems stronger. And every grace that we have to combat that sin seems weaker. But when we persist in reading the Bible, oftentimes the opposite is true. Now, what I don't want to stand up here and, and, and do is create a legalism for you that says, hey, hey Christian, all you got to do is read your Bible, open that Bible every day, and you're not going to sin because we, we know that's not always the case, right? Like we can open our Bibles, read what the Bible says, and walk right out the door. In fact, you can walk out of the door. Like, like we can say some ungodly things to our family and to our friends and those that know us and think just some heinous things, right? So we can't create a legalism like that. Reading our Bible, though, is, is how God reveals himself to us. That's the importance of reading your Bible. How do you know who God is and what he said and how you're supposed to live in this world? The Bible tells us so. And the spirit of God that he gives us when we become a Christian corroborates that with us. And the two combined are the things that cause us to grow. When we get in the word, right, we get God, so to speak. But, but here's the bonus. Having immersed ourselves in God's word, we're better equipped and able to live for him in other areas of our lives. OK, so that's that's the trick. Kind of trick. It's just how the Bible works. It's how faith works. So the question, how are you going to grow? How are you going to engage in combat sin and put it off? Peter's remedy being in the word by, by, by drinking, drinking it in. And, and to drink the word in the, 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 the remedy is we all need a system. Don't we? We need a method of being able to, to do that. A system that gets you to get in, but also stay in the word. And of course, the um, for each one of us, we need a system that works for us. Perhaps for I mean, it's it's been a couple of decades for me as a Christian that I, I've always um, at some point worked my way through the entire Bible of, of reading it. There have been seasons of my life where I've actually read the Bible in, in like the whole Bible in 90 days. When you read the Bible in that, those big of a chunks, like 10 chapters a, a day, you're going to get a, a swath of the word and you're going to see very clearly just the storyline of the Bible. Um, and so if you have time to do that, of course, do that. OK, but but all of us need some sense of a system. Some of you uh, uh, subscribe to uh, ascribe to subscribe to you version that app. You can get it on your computer. You can get it on your phone that has all kind of plans uh, that we can actually um, read the Bible, either through the Bible or reading uh, several things that might that might interest you. The point is you need a plan, a plan that gets you through the Bible in a year, a plan that gets you through the Bible in two years a plan that gets you through a portion of the Bible in uh, a short or a long amount of time. As a church, for the last two years, we have been using a system called Community Bible Reading. So um, Community Bible Reading, CBR Journal, it's nothing but a journal. I meant to bring mine up today. Uh, but what it does is the, the CBR Journal is a method of getting through the Bible in a couple of years. It's actually not a get through the Bible in a year plan. It's a let's read the Bible together plan for individuals or groups and for churches. And so we've taken this on as a church. You can get a free community Bible reading journal in, the, in our foyer. Uh, and if you're online, send us a, a note on our contacts page and we will actually send you one free of charge. We've got a, a closed Facebook page where uh, people can um, share their thoughts on what the Bible has uh, encouraged, how the Bible has challenged or encouraged them on a daily basis. But it's just a method for us to get in the word. I mean, the point is you have to have a system. You have to have a plan that gets you into the scriptures. Why? Because like a newborn infant, you're not going to grow unless you get some milk. Look at verse two. Here's what Peter commands. He commands a longing, a desire. He says, long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow into salvation by it. This is a command. It's an imperative. In fact, Peter, in chapter one, Peter gave us uh, indicative before imperative. Here he gives us an imperative and then he's going to give us an indicative. He's still giving us commands here. And so Peter says, you got along. And so some of you have this have this question like and this this problem, really. You say, well, well Pastor Jeff, 
I, I have a hard time getting motivated. I mean, that's my issue. I don't long for the word. Like there's a million things I want to do besides open my Bible and read it. And so how can I long for the word if the problem I have is longing for the word? How can you help me out there? How can I obey Peter's command when I don't even long? And I, I think verse three gives us a little bit of a clue. Look at verse three. Peter says, so long for the milk of the word. That's a command. And here's the indicative. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. The word translated if there can actually be translated as since. And so I like to say it with the word since. I think the NIV uses that. He says, since you've tasted that the Lord is good, long for the word. Peter is reminding us who we are. And he's saying because of who you are, because of what God has called you to, go and act like it. Go, go, go be this. Peter is saying to awaken our appetites for more, the thing you got to do first is taste. Just taste. Yeah, you, you heard that adage, uh, uh, a little dab will do you? All you need is a little taste, right? A taste will, will awaken your appetite before. So last night, uh, so uh, leisurely afternoon, I did some sermon work, and then I went out after the sun went down, and I mowed the grass, and then I drank a whole bunch of water, too much water. I drank so much water, I was full. My belly was like as fat as it can be. Well, not as fat as it can be. It can get a lot fatter, right? But I wasn't, I wasn't full, and Larissa made this beautiful dinner. It's like a lasagna with, uh, with some rosemary bread and some salad, like, my, like my, one of my favorite dishes. And I sat down with the kids and like I'm looking at that food and it smelled good, but I wasn't hungry. But I put, you know, in face, I put food on my plate anyway because I'm an eater. Right. OK. And I took the first bite. That's all it took. It was just good for my soul and my body needed it. All I needed to do was take one little taste. And of course, after that first bite, I got two helpings. I think that's how it is with scripture. A taste awakens our appetite. When Peter says, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, he's referencing Psalm 34, Psalm 34, verse eight. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. He's saying, hey, I, I want you to do more than just taste the data to know the information of scripture. He's saying when you drink in the word, you're drinking in the goodness of your savior, the goodness of the Lord. What, what, what is it that you get in the word when you when you open your Bible and read it? Of, of course, we're getting inspiration like this, this thing that the Holy Spirit is doing in us, whether we realize it or not. We're getting, uh, obviously, knowledge of God. God is, God is telling us who he is, and we get uh, uh, an understanding of who we are compared to him, and we get this opportunity to repent. We're getting challenged. Perhaps we're getting the conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit. But above all that, here's the beautiful thing that we're getting when we, uh, when we submit ourselves and expose ourselves to the word. We're getting Jesus. We're getting the Lord himself. When you hold the Bible in your hands, even when you're reading from an app, it's the same inspiration. It doesn't really matter what the apparatus is. The means by which you have fellowship with Jesus, the same Jesus who in, per, in, in his flesh is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us right now. That's what you are exposing yourself to when you access the word. And so Peter here is, is saying anyone who's tasted the goodness of Jesus to the to the salvation of their soul is going to long for more. One of my favorite gospel artists is uh, Erica Campbell of the, the gospel duo Mary Mary. And Erica recently put out this song. It says, I need just a little more Jesus. All right. It's a I mean, a simple song, kind of catchy. But the song has really deep theology in it. Oh, I need just a little more Jesus. It's that same thing about like a little dab will do you. I just need a taste. Just a taste is going to uh, not just whet your appetite, but give you an appetite, a, a, a desire for more. The more you have of Jesus, the more you want of him. And that's the kind of affection that Thomas Charles was talking about. You want that that expulsive power of a deeper affection that draws your heart away from your sin and to the Lord himself where you want more of him and less of all those other vices. That's what he's saying. So Peter, in a sense, is, is, is saying what our call to worship that Joseph issued this morning. At least I think he said this. I, don't even, I wasn't even in here, right? So Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. Come to him who has no money. Come buy and eat. 
come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? You've been running every which way looking for nourishment and it's been junk food. When the pure spiritual milk by which you will grow that brings Christ to you is right here gathering dust on your shelf. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about your Bible, right? It's right there in front of us. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so two things. We need to dress the part. Some of us in ours, in our soul, in our hearts, we, we got a little bit of nasty, right? We got some stuff that we've been wearing for a long time. It's soiled, and the, and the scriptures are encouraging us to put that off, to resist it, to take it away, get rid of it, get that torch out, light it up, right, and walk away. And you, you can't take stuff off without putting back on. What we put back on, we put on the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace, and patience, and righteousness, and goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. We need a new wardrobe. We need to put away the remnants of our old lives. But at the same time, we also need a new appetite. We need a new diet. We need to be awakened so that by tasting the goodness of Jesus, who comes to us himself in God's word. And so here's the exhortation, Transit Church. Let's drink him in. Let's drink in Jesus by faith in his word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. Here's what the scriptures say to us about your word. It says it won't return void, but it will do that which you purpose for it to do. And so that's our prayer today. Lord, would you cause your word to do what you purpose for it to do, to inspire us to to faith in you. I do pray that for those who are tuning in or even here in person that have never professed the faith of Jesus, God, that you, by your spirit, would extend your grace to them. You waken their hearts to understand who you are, who the person of Jesus is and what he's done to save us from our sins and call us his people, his, his, his righteous bride by his death on the cross and resulting resurrection. Would you do that? Would you save souls in our midst? And then for us who've been in the faith for a long time, God, would you uh, ignite in us uh, the appetite that we need to, to open your word and to receive from it the affection that draws us to you? God, would that be true of us, that a little dab will do you? That crazy phrase. But God, would you, for, for those who are, are feeling dry in their faith and just need the, the, the wetness of, uh, of the grace of God to come and saturate their lives. God, would you do that? Would you pour the oil of your word over us and draw us to yourself? We need more of you. That's our confession. We need just a little more Jesus. And God, would you do that through your word, by your spirit? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.